What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Mark, one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, I'm going to pray in a minute and ask for God's help. I need God's help tonight for two reasons. One... Uh, because this is right on the back of church camp, and so I'm pretty tired. Uh, hands up if you're feeling pretty weary after church camp. There's more than a few of us, uh, so we'll ask for God's help in that. Uh, but the second reason why I'm going to ask for God's help tonight is because I think that this is a really hard passage for us to hear. Uh, as pastors, Joel and Rod and I think through the preaching series that we do, and we talk about how they're going and the consensus as we met this week and talked about what's coming up is that we feel like James has just been laying body blow after body blow after body blow into us. The book of James is a hard book to read. Uh, and so this passage especially has been quite challenging for me personally this week. Uh, in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 4 verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Can I say that that is what God's word has done in my life this week? Uh, and I'm going to pray that it does the same in yours. So let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and does not remain silent. And yet, God, we know that sometimes you speak words that are hard for us to hear. So, Father, I pray, please, would you be with us now by your spirit? Please be challenging us and rebuking us and knocking off rough edges in our life where we need that. But Lord, we ask too that your spirit might be comforting and reassuring those of us who need comfort and reassurance tonight. God, above all, we pray that our eyes would be transfixed on the Lord Jesus to whom this text points. We pray that our faith in him would be strengthened this evening. We ask in his name. Amen. 
Uh, well, in the backyard of the house that I grew up in, we had these uh, absolutely beautiful big gum trees uh, all throughout our backyard. It was a pretty big backyard. I really loved that backyard, and I loved those gum trees. They had these big, beautiful canopies, this gorgeous multicolored bark on them. Uh, and one year, though, we had a guy from the council come to our house and inspect the trees. And it turned out that one tree in particular, a tree that stood quite close to our house, was infested with termites. And that was a bit of a surprise to us because to our perspective, that tree looked perfectly healthy. Uh, the tree was functioning as it should have done, we thought. Uh, we enjoyed looking at it. It gave us shade. The animals seemed to like nesting in it. And yet the truth of what was actually going on in that tree is that it was, it was essentially empty. It was essentially dead inside. And so when the council came to take down that tree, they lopped off a few of the sort of the biggest branches and then with little more than a push, they tipped the entire tree over in front of our very eyes. It looked fine from the outside. It looked genuine, authentic, healthy, but there was no life in it. Now, on a spiritual level, there is a version of the Christian faith just like that tree. There is a version of the Christian faith that looks healthy from the outside, but actually is completely empty and worthless. There is, for sure, a real, genuine, authentic kind of Christian faith, which is priceless, and yet at the same time, there is a kind that is empty, worthless, and dead. And Jesus himself, he talked about that kind of a faith in more than a few places. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's terrifying, isn't it? That is absolutely chilling. To face God on judgment day, expecting that your faith is going to be the thing which gets you into heaven, and instead of God saying, welcome, he says, I don't know who you are. Any sane person would want to avoid that happening, wouldn't they? Well, as James writes his letter to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nation, he is writing to people, many of whom have that kind of a worthless, fraudulent faith. And in the section that we're looking at tonight, James is going to address this head on. He's going to address the difference, you see, between dead faith and authentic faith. Faith which can't save and faith which can. And as I raise that question with you tonight, the difference between dead faith and authentic faith, I'm not having much luck with this clicker, Matt. You might need to move it forward for me. Next again. One more. Thank you very much. Uh, as I raise that question with you, you probably already know, especially if you're paying attention to the Bible reading, what the answer to this question is. What's the difference between dead faith and authentic faith? James is not shy about telling us the answer to that question. In fact, he tells us the answer in this passage at least five times. Did you pick up on them when they were coming through? They're going to come up on the screen. The first one is there in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Secondly, verse 17, In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. 
Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Then in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Do you get the picture? Faith without works cannot save you. Faith without works is dead faith. It is useless faith. It doesn't work. It doesn't justify. That's the point that James is going to be driving home to us this evening. Now, before we kind of go any further and actually start unpacking this passage, I feel like I have to kind of address uh, the elephant in the room because already it's probably pretty likely that many of you are sitting there and your little heresy radars are going off. You're thinking, hang on a second, something doesn't quite seem right about this passage. My, my knowledge of Scripture elsewhere is telling me that I don't think this can be right. Anybody thinking about that? You know, maybe we think that James at this point has got it wrong. James has misunderstood something. Maybe James needs to come along to the Discover course and learn about some of the essential elements of the Christian faith. You know, that central truth of the gospel, for instance, that justification, your declaration of innocence before God, that, that is by faith alone. You know, especially verse 24. Verse 24, it looks like James has flat out contradicted, for instance, the Apostle Paul. Let's have these verses up on the screen. James 2 verse 24. Isn't he contradicting the Apostle Paul? James 2, you see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Paul says that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is going on here? Are you with me on this question? It's a fair question to ask. If you want to ask that question, you're actually in really good company. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, he had major issues with the book of James because of this exact question. What is going on here? Is there a contradiction between James and the rest of the Bible? Well, the answer is no. There is no contradiction here. And Martin Luther came to agree on this point as well. So I'm not trying to expound anything new here. I want to quickly try and explain for you a couple of reasons why there is no contradiction here. There's no contradiction between James and the rest of the Bible. Firstly, because James is crystal clear that justification is by faith alone. He has said basically that exact thing back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18, James has said that God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. You see what he's saying there? James knows that salvation is of God. It's God's initiative. God is the one who gives us birth, right? So James is not undermining justification by faith. That's the first reason. The second reason is actually that Paul and indeed the rest of the Bible writers, they understand that works are an absolutely indispensable part of faith. Uh, we love those words from Ephesians chapter 2, right? Ephesians chapter 2, some of the favorite words in the Bible. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. We love those words, but we often forget about verse 10, don't we? Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, according to Paul, we are saved for good works. Uh, it's actually part of God's plan 
for our lives. He has redeemed for himself a people eager to do good. Paul knows that. And so please see, just off the bat, that Paul and James agree that we are saved by faith alone and that works are absolutely necessary. And so what is this apparent contradiction that we're seeing then between James 2.24 and the rest of the Bible? Well, it actually it really comes down to uh, the fact that Paul and James are addressing different situations, different contexts, different problems. I'll give you an illustration and try and uh, help you understand what I mean. I want you to imagine that you go to the doctor's office. You're sick, you're sitting there, you're waiting to see the doctor. And as you're sitting there, you see the doctor walk into one of the examination rooms. There's a patient already in there. And the doctor says to that patient, and you can overhear what he says, he says, I don't want you to do any exercise whatsoever. Just stay put. Do not, under any circumstances, go for a run. Opens the door, comes out of the examination room, walks across the hallway, goes into another examination room, sees a different patient. And again, you overhear what he says. The doctor says to this patient, get up. Go for a run, for goodness sake. What are you doing? You need to move. Now, as you sit there, is that doctor contradicting himself? Well, you'd have to say no, right? It, the, the reason the doctor is giving different advice is because the two patients have different symptoms. This guy in the first uh, room who's told not to move, he's got a broken leg. The guy in the second room who's told to get off of his bum and get, go out for a run, he's got high cholesterol. The doctor's not contradicting himself. It's all dependent on the situation. And so it is with these two verses. Paul, you see, when he says that we are justified by faith alone, he's addressing Gentile believers who are worried that the death of Jesus is not enough for them. And so they're trying to add on to the death of Jesus what they need to do to be saved. They're trying to obey the Jewish food laws. They want to go and get circumcised because they're nervous that the death of Jesus is not enough for them. And Paul says, no, your faith is enough. Your faith alone is what justifies you. You cannot add onto God's grace through your works. But James, you see, he's addressing an entirely different situation. James is addressing Jewish people who have received the grace of God and who have now become complacent. They're saying, we're saved by grace. Isn't that great? Well, it doesn't matter how I live now. I can do anything that I want. In fact, I don't have to do a thing. And so James is speaking into that situation and he's saying, no, you've misunderstood. If your faith doesn't lead to works, then it's no faith at all. Paul wants to be crystal clear to his audience that a person doesn't get into the kingdom of God through their works, only by faith. James is trying to insist that people who have already gotten into the kingdom of God for them, works are absolutely necessary. So to put it as simply as I can, I try and remember this. Both Paul and James are saying that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Hopefully that resolves some of the tension. Hopefully that deals with the elephant in the room before we dive into this chapter of James chapter 2. So let's return to, uh, to that big question, that big question that James is going to deal with for us here. What is the difference between dead faith and authentic faith? He's got a few lessons for us to learn. Let's learn the first one together. The first difference that James tells us is that authentic faith is about more than just good intentions. It's 
about more than just good intentions. Verse 15, James writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Let's just stop right there. Who's Paul, who's James talking about? He's talking about a brother or sister. He's not talking about the homeless person that you walk past on Crown Street. He's not talking about the person who comes and knocks on the church door saying, I'm in need. He's talking about the person sitting next to you, a brother or sister, someone who loves and follows the Lord Jesus. And this person comes to your church and they are in need. That's slightly more confronting than just thinking about some abstract person in help. No, this is the person in need within your church. And he says this person is without clothes, verse 15. They're without daily food. You know, they prayed that prayer, God give us our daily bread. But God has not answered that prayer. And they're going hungry. And when they walk into church on a Sunday, it is obvious that they are in need by perhaps how they dress or how they act or how they look. And so what's the response? Verse 16, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He says, what good is it? If you do that jovial, friendly, you know, yes, well-meaning, but ultimately very pious, oh, I hope it works out for you. Oh, well, you know, go in peace, my brother and sister. I really pray that God will meet your needs this week. What good is it when you say those words, but you're actually sitting there at home with a pantry full of food, with a wardrobe full of clothes, and you do nothing to help that person? You take no action. You give them no food. You give them no clothes. What good is it? James said, it's no good. It's useless. You haven't helped anybody, no matter how well-meaning you were. Dead faith is all talk and no action. Uh, there's a word that's come into the English language in recent years. Uh, that word is slacktivism. You heard of slacktivism before? Uh, it's a combination of the words slack and activism. Uh, this is basically where we click like on like a worthwhile cause on Facebook. Or maybe you sign your name on a petition on change.org about something which you are supposedly passionate about in order to help other people. And yet, when you do that, that's all that you do. It doesn't correspond to any action in real life whatsoever. Offline, you are not doing a thing to help the people that you are when you click that mouse button. It's activism, but it's slack. It's slacktivism. Do you remember back in 2012, there was a video that swept the internet called Make Coney Famous. Coney 2012. It was everywhere on the internet for a short period of time. The aim of that video was to draw the world's attention to a guy called Joseph Coney. He was the leader, in fact he still is the leader, of a guerrilla group operating in Uganda who employ thousands of child soldiers. Coney was, and he still is, on the world's top 10 most wanted list. And so back in 2012, this 30-minute video swept the internet, trying to open people's eyes to what Joseph Coney was doing and the crimes that he was committing. This video was watched by over 100 million people in a really short amount of time. And as part of that campaign to try and draw attention to Joseph Coney, there were these synchronized events that were supposed to happen all over the world on the same night, April 20th. It was called Cover the Night. The idea was to gather in cities all over the world and to pick it, to make, make known this problem of Joseph Coney so that our governments would do something about it. I was living in Sydney at the time, and the event for Cover the Night 
in Sydney attracted 18,700 yes I will attend clicks on Facebook but in Martin Place on April the 20th covered the night does anybody want to guess how many people showed up to that event anyone uh, more than 10 but not much more <laughs> 25 people showed up 25 people out of 18,700 that is 0.13 of a percent 0.13 of a percent of the people who said yes they would go this is not the maybes this is not the no's those who actually clicked yes only 25 of them turned up that is slacktivism and when it comes to our faith we are so prone to do this aren't we because words are cheap and we use them cheaply with no intention of actually lifting a finger to help people and James says that when we do that, we've got dead faith, not authentic faith. Uh, this week I was doing some reflecting on how frequently I used words as a way to excuse myself from actually taking action to help people. It was a sobering thing to reflect on. You know what I mean, don't you? I'll be praying for you. It's so easy to say that when somebody is in need and to pat yourself on the back and think to yourself, oh, I've done the godly thing here. I've been a, a good Christian by doing this. But friends, please understand, prayer is never a substitute for action. Do you know that? Prayer is never a substitute for action. It should always, for a Christian, be prayer plus when there is somebody in need. Prayer plus a phone call. Prayer plus I'll cook you a meal. Prayer plus how about some money. Prayer plus, how about some babysitting? Verse 16, James says, If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Answer, none. It's no good. Authentic faith is more than just good intentions. Second difference that James wants to show us is that authentic faith is more than just knowledge. Authentic faith is more than just knowledge. In verse 18, James is kind of entering into a hypothetical debate with somebody who says that you can separate faith from deeds. And so James says to that person in verse 9, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He says you believe that, that, that there is one God. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verses 4 and 5. You know those famous words in Israel's history. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul. It was called the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for listen, the first word of the, of the sentence. And it was the most basic central doctrine of the Jewish faith. God is one. And so devout Jews, they would recite the Shema, the first thing they did when they got out of bed in the morning. They would recite the Shema, the last thing they did before they went to bed in the evening. They would write the Shema on their door frames and they would kiss it as they walked in and out of their rooms. This is an important theological truth here. James says, you believe that central truth, right? It's just like we believe that central truth of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You believe that? He goes, good, great. Guess what? Even the demons believe that and they shudder. 
you think that that theology is what's going to make you right with God? Yeah, that theology, the demons know that. In fact, they probably even know it better than you know it yourself. There's a really interesting story back in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5 where Jesus goes to the region of the Gerasenes and he comes into contact with a demon-possessed man. This man sees him from a distance and he runs to him and he falls at Jesus' feet and he cries out at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This demon knows more about Jesus in Mark's Gospel than literally any other person that Jesus comes into contact with. You see, demons, they probably have a better understanding of who God is than you or I. Demons are more theologically rigorous and astute than you or I are. You see the point that James is making here? Authentic faith is more than just knowledge. It's so obvious, isn't it? Of course, authentic faith is more than just knowledge because otherwise the demons would have faith and we know that that's not true. Friends, honestly, I find this truth incredibly scary. I think you should too. This truth means that it is possible to say all of the right things. It's possible to believe all of the right things. It's possible that you can quote scripture left, right and center and God is still possibly going to say to you, you fool. You fool. Knowledge is not enough. Do you know that there are going to be people in hell who can quote John 3.16? There are going to be people in hell who will be able to recite to you two ways to live. A lot of us have just come back from church camp. Can I say to you, there are going to be people in hell who know how the Old Testament law correctly relates to Christians today. Simply having the right knowledge, simply knowing the right theological truth it is not enough if that truth never translates into changing the way that you live Uh, our church leadership have just received uh, some information this week the first results of the national church life survey do you remember we did the national church life survey at the end of last year it's a big survey that churches all over australia do every five years to tell us how we're going, whether we're on mission and how successful we've been, that sort of thing. We've gotten the first results from the National Church Life Survey uh, this past week, so we haven't digested it fully yet. We will be giving you more information about it as time progresses, but there's one result tonight that I particularly wanted to share with you. Uh, in, In the survey, you might remember, one of the questions that it asked you to fill out was, what do you value most about your church? What do you value most about Wollongong Baptist? I'm going to show you the results uh, that came up for Wollongong Baptist Church. What do people most value about this church? Well, in case you can't read, in case it's too small, that that top bar there says that 69% of people in our church responded that sermons and Bible teaching were the thing that they valued most here at WBC. Uh, That second line, 44% of people said that the thing that they valued most was small group Bible studies. Now, on one level, and you can see here how quick the drop-off is to everything else. On one level, that's an incredibly encouraging result. And part of me really wants to thank God for this. I'm pleased that our people here like to learn from the Scriptures. That is a good thing. But at the same time, I think a result like that exposes a very real 
danger for us as a church. And that danger is that we would be so concerned about learning the Bible, so concerned about truth and theology, uh, that we would actually lose sight of the reason why we're learning that truth in the first place. You know, if we spend all our time just filling our heads with all of this knowledge, but we never actually live it out, James says we are as bad as the demons. Our faith is useless. Uh, As I was preparing, one commentator put this so helpfully that I just want to share this with you. One commentator says it like this. It's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it's unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. Authentic saving faith is more than just knowledge. That's the second difference that James wants us to know. But James isn't finished with us yet. He's got one more difference for us to learn and to teach this to us. He's going to take us back to two figures in the Old Testament uh, so that we can learn some lessons from their faith. Uh, The first figure that that James is going to take us back to is Abraham. Abraham in verse 20. You remember the story of Abraham? Abraham was called by God uh, back in Genesis chapter 12. God promises to Abraham that he's going to be a great nation. He's going to bless him with land and offspring. Incredible promises. But the, pr- the problem for Abraham was that he was childless and he was old. And so a few chapters later, Genesis 15, God makes another promise to Abraham. And he promises Abraham that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we're told in Genesis 15, verse 6, you can look it up, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what James is quoting in chapter 2. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham gets saved by his faith in God's promises. And we know how the story goes from there. God miraculously gives Abraham that son that he promised him. He gives him Isaac, this child of promise. Then within just a few short chapters, God issues a staggering command to Abraham. God instructs Abraham to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys him. And James, as he points back to that story, he says there in verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete. By what he did. He proved his faith, if you like, by his works. He proved that he had authentic faith by what he did. It wasn't just all empty words or empty knowledge. He trusted God and he obeyed him. And so from Abraham, James then kind of zooms across to another example who, in one way, couldn't be less similar to Abraham. And so in verse 25, he points us to Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab from the time of Joshua. And so this is, this is a contrast going on here, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got the ancestor of ancestors, Father Abraham, the most respected of all of the Jewish ancestors. And then on the other hand, you've got this Gentile prostitute, Rahab, so different, so unlike each other. And yet James is about to show us how actually their faith makes them the same. And so if you know the story of Rahab, it's in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. The Israelites sent some spies into the land and into the city of Jericho. And these two spies that go into Jericho, they get spotted. They're pretty dodgy spies. 
And so they have to seek refuge. They're on the run and they go and they hide and they find the only safe place that they can whilst they're on the run. Where are they? Of course, they're in a brothel, a brothel that is run by Rahab. And so the authorities eventually come and they knock on Rahab's door. She's housing these fugitives and the authorities say, have you seen these two spies? We know they're around somewhere. And Rahab goes, no, I haven't seen them. And actually, I I think someone said that they went off in that direction. And so she sends off the authorities after them. And the spies are safe, taking refuge in that brothel. Now, why does Rahab lie? Why does she do that incredible thing? Why is she risking her life, literally, by betraying her own people? Why? Well, we're told in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says this, I know that God is the God of heaven above and the earth below. Rahab has faith. It's a simple faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And it's a faith which moved her to take action. And so James says that it was because of that that she was considered righteous. She proved her faith by her deeds, just like Abraham did too. And so can you see the lesson, the third lesson that James is teaching us about authentic faith here? Here it is. Authentic faith is marked by costly action. That's what Abraham and Rahab show us. Authentic faith is marked by costly action. I mean, have you ever tried to just put yourself in Abraham's shoes? Abraham had waited for decades for this promised son to come along. He'd taken matters into his own hands. And yet, finally, God delivers. He comes through on his promise. Can you imagine what Abraham would be feeling when God tells him to go and sacrifice this son of his? Do you reckon Abraham would have found that easy? I'm sure that going through Abraham's head was, why God? Why are you telling me to do this? I don't like this God. I don't want to do this. There's got to be a better way, God. I would prefer to do it a different way, God. But you know, every step that Abraham took up that mountain, every piece of wood he picked up for the fire, and he lifted the knife in his hand, They were all acts of obedience, radical, costly acts of obedience. And in doing so, Abraham showed his faith. He was willing to do anything. He was willing to lose everything for the sake of God. That is costly faith. How about you? Is your faith costly? What has your faith cost you personally? What has it cost you? When was the last time that you were seriously inconvenienced even because you pursued obedience to God at the cost of your own freedoms? Can you think of when that last time was? Here's another question for you. If someone looked at your life, would they be able to tell that you are a Christian, even if they'd never heard you say that you were. James tells us back in verse 18 that he is able to show people his faith by his deeds. Could you do that? If someone had never heard you say that you were a Christian, 
if they had never seen the, the fish on the back of your car, they'd never seen you carrying a Bible around with you, they'd never seen you wear that T-shirt from Beach Mission that you wear everywhere, would that person be able to look at your life and see the radical, crazy, costly acts of obedience that you do and go, that person has got to have faith in God because that is the only reason that somebody would live like that. Does your life look so extreme, so crazy, so incomprehensible to people in the world that they look at you and they say, faith, that's the only answer to that person's life? Is that you? Or is your faith cheap? Is it all talk, all knowledge, but no action? Back in the 1800s, there was a a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. And in the summer of 1859, Charles Blondin set up shop at Niagara Falls. And he ran a tightrope from one end of Niagara Falls to the other, 350 meters across Niagara Falls, 50 meters above the ground. Charles Blondin did some amazing things on that tightrope that summer. He walked across the tightrope in a sack, you know, like you would wear in like a sack race in primary school. He walked across that tightrope in shackles. He even did it once in an ape suit. He was a pretty amazing tightrope walker. My favorite one is that one time he carried a small stove and utensils and cooking ingredients on his back out into the middle of the falls and he set up this stove, set a fire and cooked himself an omelet on the tightrope in the middle of Niagara Falls. Uh, One time Blondin had walked a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls and he walked it back in the other direction as well. And when he reached the adoring crowd back at this end of Niagara Falls, they were elated. And so Blondin asked them, he said, who believes that I could put a person in this wheelbarrow and walk them to the other side of the falls? And they all cheered, threw up their hands, yeah, Blondin, we believe you, you could do it, you could do it. His next question, who of you will be that person? (laughs) All their hands went down, absolute silence, nobody volunteered for that. You see, they believed that he could do it, and yet they weren't willing to entrust their lives to his care. They said that they believed anyway, and yet they weren't willing to take any action that might prove costly. Friends, James is showing us tonight that authentic faith in Jesus involves putting your life into his hands, not just your eternity, but your life into his hands. Authentic faith involves being willing to take action, being willing to pay any cost that he might have you pay, holding nothing back in your life. That's authentic faith. And how could authentic faith be anything less than this? After all, our faith is in the one who held nothing back of himself when he gave up his life on the cross. How could authentic faith be anything but costly when we understand what God's grace cost for us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that his death on the cross was satisfactory, that there is nothing that we can add to his death to merit our salvation. And yet, God, we hear this really hard call from James 2 to be those who put our faith into action. We hear your warnings tonight, Father. And so please help us to examine ourselves. And Lord, where we have been indifferent, 
where we have made our words cheap, where we have pursued knowledge of you rather than obedience to you, please rebuke us, Father, and help us to live lives of such radical, costly obedience to you that the world would see our good deeds and praise you, our Heavenly Father. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for that, Mark. Um, that, was, that was very confronting, I'd say, um, in a good way.